You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Judges chapter 2, good to see you this morning. Judges chapter 2 today. And to trust that uh, this morning finds you doing well. And despite what you feel like maybe is out of control, including maybe your own heart and mind, he reigns, right? And uh, there is no corner or crevice of any place that exists today, inside and out of us, that uh, he is not sovereign. And that really steadies and soothes my heart today. And I enjoyed uh, singing that new song with you today, He Reigns. It probably ought to be the mantra of our day-to-day existence, right? Fussing and fuming, and she said this, and he did that, and look at what's going on in this part of the world, and we ought to just keep saying, He Reigns. Yeah, I heard you, but He Reigns. And I hope that uh, we can remind ourselves of that this week. If you will, Judges chapter 2, before we get to our text today, just a couple things of note coming up. Uh, First of all, I want to say thank you to all of you who've helped with our Amen Project as we're in the midst of renovating our auditorium. And uh, if you guys can pull up the first slide there, this is, some of you have asked about this, under your feet is kind of the last big chunk of our project. And so we'd ask you if you can help us get over the hump. We need about $13,900 to finish up what we need to pay out of pocket for the carpet. Um, And we've been just doing it as we have the funds and we've raised, as you see in the back of the bulletin, almost 70, I think $77,000 we've raised to do with the ceiling and lighting and lots of other things. We've done sound booth. And uh, so if you would consider that, and as soon as you guys, uh, we're not going to debate about the color of the carpet here in our church, because that often gets us in a bad place as church folks. Um, my wife will make the final call on that. But uh, if you will, if I'm not kidding, I'm not kidding. Uh, if you will fund that, we will order it this week. So if you just want to, some of you just have extra cash laying around uh, or you want to make a deep uh, sacrifice, whatever, but uh, please help us with that. We'd love to get that over the hump in the next month or so here. And if you can help us, uh, we'd love to get that ordered uh, as soon as possible. Um, secondly, just by way of praise, um, just how God's working and moving in our church, just want to give praise to the Lord. Um, I have been uh, on uh, staff at our church. I can't remember the year that God allowed the church to take us on full time. We had some support when we started, uh, and then Pastor Nathan came on, uh, served for a while, and then we added Pastor Dave and Miss Brandy as well, and those two families. But uh, as of March 1st, Pastor Dave will be uh, full time as uh, our second full time staff member. And I just want to let you know about that. He let his other part time job know that this past Tuesday. And so God is growing our church. We're grateful for that. Pray for the Cottoners and some of the changes that'll uh, be for their family. Excited to serve the Lord with them in that increased capacity. Um, and then the last thing would be this. Um, we, uh, next Sunday, um, are having, if I can, there we go, uh, our wellness weekend. I just wanted to briefly tell you what's going to happen next weekend. So next Saturday, this is a special session we'll be having at 5.30 p.m. Uh, next Saturday evening. Uh, The theme for the day is processing guilt, both guilt that we have or at least feel we have toward God, Um, and so between us and God, and then also between us and others, whether there's some wrong we've done to others or others have done to us. Most counseling um, in the secular setting 
tries to basically mute the conscience, whether that's medically or therapeutically. Um, and I believe a lot of our issues, not all of them, that much of the unhealth in our day, psychologically, emotionally, even physically, is because of unresolved guilt. So we're going to talk about that next weekend. So anyway, the schedule, uh, unresolved guilt with others, will be the evening service. We'll have a soup fellowship, so we're asking you to bring a soup to share. Everything else will be provided by the church, so that'll be after the evening service. Pastor Dave will remind you as well at the end of the service, but we'll have then our, we had fun with our youth uh, dessert auction after that soup fellowship. Um, that's not something we're trying to get the public to come and then participate in that. That's for our church family. But I encourage you to invite someone to come for that Saturday. And then on Sunday at 9 a.m., we will have a hymn sing. So we're going to print out some of the old rich hymns that have to do with my guild is all gone, kind of that theme. Brother Josh will have those put together for us. And then we're going to talk about specifically how to deal with um, what others are um, maybe threats to themselves. What do I do if someone lets me know that they're struggling with suicidal thoughts, uh, self-harm, or if they're threatening or have harmed someone else? How do we process that? Um, and then also talking about illegal things maybe that they're engaged in. How do we as a third party um, encourage them and do the responsible thing to them? So that'll be a little more of like a, a Q&A format. Um, and uh, give an opportunity for you to ask questions in that as well. And then at 10.30, our second service will be on unresolved guilt between us and God. Um, and we're going to talk about specifically legitimate guilt and then also false guilt. Um, guilt is a legal position. It is not an emotion. Um, and sometimes that false guilt from things that we've done wrong or we've got right with God but still feel like we've failed. Um, and then Heidi is going to be doing in the junior churches a little storybook on how kids process guilt. Because I think for a lot of us in the room, probably we should have heard some things on guilt 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, so that'll be a bit of a preventative thing for our kids in junior church. So great weekend next weekend. All of that to say, invite somebody to come with you. Okay, this is not just meant for us to just cathartically deal with our issues internally. It's to offer it to our community. Don't you think there are other people in Wayne County that probably need to hear some of this? Um, and so whether they're housebound, encourage them to tune in online. Uh, if possible, invite them to be with us for the weekend. But for you in the room, can I encourage you to make that Saturday night session especially a priority? Um, it all fits together. It builds on each other. And so please make that a priority next, Sunday, uh, next Saturday at 530. All right, Judges chapter 2. Let's look, if you will, at verse number 8. Judges chapter 2. And let's begin in verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Herez, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaash. And also, uh, also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, notice this, and provoked the Lord to anger. Go down to verse 16. I love this verse, probably my favorite verse in this chapter. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hands of those that spoiled them. So we're going to look at today, our second uh, in our series, Grace for the Idolatrous Generation. If you were not with us last week, we're talking about the fact that God gives grace to every generation despite the issues, the dysfunction, uh, and as we're going to look at today, the idolatry of our day. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy it is to be here this morning. Thank you for these dear folks and uh, guests as well that are with us. I pray that each would feel warmly welcomed and included and uh, yet also challenged, Lord, by the worship and the study of your word. Thank you, Father, that your word gives us such clarity, such conviction, and also, Lord, such hope in the day in which we live. And uh, Lord, you reign, you reign, you reign, you reign. And Lord, I pray today that we would live in light of that as we serve you and walk with you even this morning. Bless this study, be honored in how your word is preached and taught, how it's received, and how we each this week live it out in our lives before you. And we'll thank you and praise you alone for it in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that's interesting to me is the differences between generations. And I came across this study just the other day uh, before I show you the graphics. So this would be brands that we value. And it specifically was contrasting different companies that baby boomers um, value, um, those that are Gen X and then Gen Z, um, and kind of contrasting those. And I just wanted to show you these. Just don't, don't go to seed on them, but this would be with the brain, they use the analogy of the brain, these are the brands that baby boomers today value. So this would be ages 55 to 64. This was put out a couple of years ago, so it might be just a few years older than that, if you're including that window. But for those of you in the baby boomer era, uh, your number one brand is Amazon, not when you were 16, obviously, but today. Um, you value that. And then it goes Toyota, Apple, and you can see the different ones. What's interesting is that if you notice the top right there, if you can make out, I can read it. Maybe you can't from where you're at, especially you baby boomers can't read this. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Four four consumer uh, packaged goods. So four of the top 10 are more like, like Hershey. That's interesting to me that Hershey is, is of great value to the baby boomers. Um, and obviously, you might have some differences, but overall, um, those were some takeaways. Um, the second would be Gen X, which is me, which I can read. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, these uh, ages 35 to 54, um, and it's interesting, they only rank two retail brands. So it goes from an Apple, what obviously is in the front lobe of our brain, because during our generation, the iPhone. Um, 2007, I believe, was the uh, introduction of the iPhone. So to us, my generation, that's a, that's a leading brand, and then you can kind of see the other ones uh, around it. And then here, thirdly, would be Gen Z. So this would be, or millennials, this would be age 18 to 34. Um, so those just out of high school. Um, and it's interesting to see some of the movement of the brands, how they've changed. Um, Target um, is higher up um, in their mind. But what I want you to notice, I don't know if you can see it or not, but in the very bottom right, so YouTube is, what is it, number six, uh, number eight, YouTube. 38% of YouTube users in this generation would say they cannot live without YouTube. Um, And there were interesting things. My generation can't live without Walmart, which I thought very interesting. I I could live without Walmart myself. but just how brands consume our thinking. Now, when I say to you idolatry, the temptation is to view that only in a Buddha in your backyard with an altar of incense in front of it. And my point to you is this, that all of us, no matter our specific generation, we have things that we like to identify with, sometimes in a healthy way and sometimes in a way that kind of shoves God to the side a bit. 
Um, and so I want us to think about today where idolatry has crept in and then to renew our hope in a God who can deliver us from it. You may want to jot down this definition of idolatry. I think this is probably the best definition. Um, Pastor Nathan, you might want to back that heat off just a tad there. It was a little cool and now we're, I can feel it. You guys are like, no, I'm, I'm just now getting comfortable. Sorry about that. Um, but here in, uh, let me give you a definition of idolatry. Here it is. It's anything we come to rely upon for blessing, help, or guidance. It is anything we come to rely upon for blessing, help, or guidance in place of wholehearted reliance upon the true living God. All right, can I give you that definition again? It is, it is anything we come to rely upon for blessing, help, or guidance in place of wholehearted reliance on the true living God. So anytime we look to something or someone else for blessing, help, or guidance, we rely upon it for those things in place of a wholehearted reliance upon the true and living God. And here's what scares me and concerns me, is there's a whole bunch of idolatry represented in this room, and we don't even realize it. Some of us are relying upon a certain financial strategy. I'm not going to have debt, and I've got all of this saved up. Certain health, dietary decisions we make. We're looking to other things besides, not that those things are not good, but not ultimately upon God for his blessing, his help, and his guidance. Now, with that being said, every generation has been defined by its idols. And here's what's amazing about our God. Our God can still work. In every generation, because every generation has its own set of idols, and God still says, hey, I still want to prove myself. I still want to manifest myself uh, in the day in which uh, you live. And so may we today allow God to renew our hope in the face of all the false gods that we see. There's no idol, listen to me, who can neutralize our God. He's greater, He's more powerful. He's more than able to move and work despite all the idolatry in this room, outside of this room. He is still more than able. Now, Genesis chapter, or Judges chapter 2, verses 6 to the beginning of chapter 3. If you remember last week, I mentioned to you that Judges has two introductions. We talked about some of the political or the military aspects of that um, in chapter number 1. And now we're moving into the religious components of what leads to the book of Judges. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2, the earlier verses, you see in verses 4 and 5 that the people of Israel, they weep and then they sacrifice. And it seems like, hey, they're all coming back to God. But then Judges, the narrator, pumps the brakes upon that optimism and reminds us of what's about to happen in the book, all of this idolatry that leads to these consequences. So the question today is this, in light, in light of so many forms of in-your-face idolatry in our day, how do we as God's people still believe that God, uh, who exclusively deserves our worship, that he still can work in our generation? Let's talk about today two ways in which God offers his grace to every generation uh, in these areas that involve idolatry. Number one, let's talk for a few minutes about idolatrous leakage where there's a slow leak that leads us in the direction of false worship. Um, Heidi and I have several friends in Michigan from our time there uh, working on staff at a church, and I have a friend there who is not a plumber. Right? I just want to preface this story with the following caveat, that he is not a plumber. 
And he decided that he thought he could replace a faucet in his bathroom, key part of this, without turning the water off. (laughs) And so he told his wife to get a few, here's what he said to her, not kidding, get a few extra towels, we may need them, okay? And then he proceeded to uncap 60 PSI of water in his home probably. And the story that followed is hilarious to envision in my mind. I didn't see it, but I wish I could have, okay? I would have helped him, but I would have enjoyed just watching that geyser in his bathroom. Um, Do you ever feel like the floodgates of false worship is just so overwhelming? Like, where do we start today? We're talking about idolatry. I mean, if we listed, if I just got out a whiteboard and we just started writing down all of the idols of our day, I think I'd need more than one whiteboard, wouldn't I? It's everywhere. It's so ingrained in our culture. It's so ingrained in our own minds uh, and hearts. And may I say to you today, our sense of being overwhelmed by all of this terrible idolatry and idolaters is because we are not turning to the one true God. Um, I have a friend who's in the Secret Service. He went to the same school I did in undergrad. He then got involved with Secret Service. And Secret Service, we always think of them throwing their body in front of the presidents to take bullets. But their primary responsibility, one of their largest things, is counterfeiting. And for those who are battling counterfeiting, the the issue is not trying to understand all the different new bills and, and technology. It's just to know what a real one looks like, right? And here's my thought today as it relates to our leakage of Uh, of worship and leakage of idolatry is we're spending so much time talking about and worrying about all the false idols and knocking them down and and demonizing them and dealing with them instead of turning to and staying locked in upon the Lord. In fact, I would add this thought. Sometimes our obsession with how wrong the idolatry of our world is actually becomes an idol for us. We're not in this book. We're watching so much on the news. We're reading it. We're consuming everything about everybody and everything that's wrong. And we're not worshiping and studying and growing in who God is ourselves. Um, And so the, the shoring up of this leakage needs to be turning to God, one who can always stem the tide in any given generation consumed with idolatry. So let's talk about a couple things God does here in chapter two. And these are great verses, give us great hope, I think, as well as challenge this morning. Number one, in your notes there, jot this down. Know that God will work despite leaking memory. So the first issue was their memory began to leak an appreciation for and a remembrance of what God had done. And if you go back to verse 6, you notice that Joshua lets the people go. The children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. Number one, there was a forgottenness or a forgetfulness as it related to leadership. Notice God speaks through Joshua, and Joshua delegates to each tribe and each household their inheritance that they were called to possess. And so here we have Judges begins by reminder of the leadership of Joshua and his example, the standard, if you will, of leadership up to which every other leader in Judges will be measured. And I think verse 6 is referring to the, the incident in Shechem. If you were to go back to Joshua chapter 24, Joshua sends out the tribes. He gives them their assignment, and they are called to possess the land. What's interesting in verse 6 is where it says, 
to possess the land. The word possess means not only to possess, but also to dispossess. They were called to not only own the land and to lean into it and to farm it and to develop it, but also to push out the idolatry, right? To break down the altars and to push out those who worship them. Um, And so this is the leadership that God had given uh, to Israel, and he had done so through Joshua. Leadership. Verse 7, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua. Notice who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And so we have this period of time, both in Joshua's day and then after Joshua passes away, those who had led with him, they followed the leaders God had put in their lives. Verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant Lord died, being 110 years old. They bury him and the border of his inheritance. And so we see the passing of Joshua. In fact, Joshua is the only one of the leaders to this point who's actually buried in the promised land. Um, he's, he's, Moses was not, and Joshua here, he was faithful. He finished the course that God had given to him. What's interesting, though, about Joshua is with all the success that he had, there was one thing that didn't transfer, wasn't there? There was no successor. There was a void, there was, a, there was an opening that a lack of leadership allowed in this false worship and this misdirection of God's people. Mesumit to today, our issues stem less from so much idolatry, putting that in quotes. There's so much idolatry, listen to me, and instead so little leadership. See, when we talk about idols, that's a bit kind of disconnected from us. We can't really change it. We don't really have to assume responsibility for it. But if I would say to you today, our idolatry really is mostly just a symptom of too much wrong leadership or too little right leadership. And so the issue here, this void that's filled with idolatry is a lack of leadership. A friend of mine just the other day posted this. He said, there are three types of Christian leaders, and I'd like you to think about which category you fit into. First, there's the type of Christian leader who is a remember when leader, just remembering the good old days. The second group is the remember me. It's all about my comfort and my legacy and my reputation. And then the third category is this, the remember why leader, and that is reaching the next generation. And he said this, he said, during the stress and pressures of today, I must set the stage to reach the next generation. Have we remembered the why? A lot of the idolatry that we have of just comfort and self and consume with it is what's leading to the next generation worshiping themselves and worshiping the idols of their day, just as they've seen modeled by us. And so we must remember the why. We must be the leader that God has called us to be. All right, verse 10, where does that lead us? And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And then here is this sad description of which the rest of the book one pack. And there arose an, <laughs> excuse me, another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Number two, forgotten not only in leadership, but number two, in relationship. Forgotten in relationship. So there's a lack of leadership. Number two, there's a lack of relationship between God and his people. 
I don't know exactly what the writer of, jo- of Judges refers to here, but the word knew, knew him not probably does not reference the fact they didn't know about the Exodus. They didn't know about the Red Sea or the crossing of the Jordan, the walls of Jericho, and the list goes on. It's rather they had forgotten that these truths and who God was was to be precious and central to their lives. See, it's not that we put this, that we burn the Bible. We just take it and we close it and we just kind of set it off to the side a bit. And then the next generation moves it further. It's not central to our lives. It's not at the core. It's not around which everything else rotates and orbs. It, it, they had forgotten how central and how precious God and what he had done for them should be. This generation had not learned to revere and rejoice in what God had done. Worship. In other words, they had forgotten the gospel, the good news that they had been saved from slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land by the gracious, mighty acts of God. That's the only reason they were there in that moment. And I would remind us of that this morning as well. We're only where we're at because of the gospel, right? The grace of God has brought us to this moment. Do we know that? And does the next generation sense how overwhelmed, how glorious and grand God's working in our lives has been. And so we see in verse 10 this forgetfulness as it relates to their relationship with God. Verse 11, again, vacuums are filled with idolatry. And the children of Israel, this generation that forgot, that knew not, did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And so in verse 11, they do evil. Notice what God calls evil, simply worshiping these false or lesser gods. And the word Balaam is just a plural of Baal. So these were little lords. The word Baal means lord. Um, And so these little gods, these false gods, each one choosing which they wanted to worship. And God defines it as evil. See, today to not live with a personal relationship with God as the central focus of your life will cause you to stray into and to mislead others into the only other option. Worshiping God or what? Evil. Evil. Worshiping anything else but God. Uh, Go to 2 Timothy, if you would, for just a moment. Just bringing this into the New Testament context. Hold your place there in Judges 2. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13. Paul here speaking to the young man Timothy, the next generation. He's advising him and encouraging him to stay faithful. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13. As you're turning there, um, I want you to think about the last obituary that you read of someone that you either are related to or someone that you know in the paper, online, funeral homes, listing uh, on their website. And one of the things I've noticed with obituaries is we tend to put on that a picture of the loved one, not moments before they pass, but we go back a few years, don't we? Usually we choose a picture that's not unreasonably far from when they passed away. I'm talking of those especially that die of good old age. Um, But we choose something that's a few years removed from the moment of passing, right? That's typically what I've seen families do that. I've been a part of that decision as well and, and my family. And the thought that I was thinking of is this, is as we finish life, what picture are we giving off of God? 
Uh, when we finish life, are we giving off a picture of vitality, a picture of vibrancy, or does God kind of die with us? Does his grandeur and his glory kind of fade as we fade? Um, we have to remember and we have to remind the next generation that God is bigger um, than us. In fact, I would say this before we read these verses. God does something in any generation for not just that generation, but the next generation to know it, to see it, and respond to it. There are things that have happened before I ever crossed the threshold of this world, before I ever was born, that I still am moved by Dents and differences that God made in other people that preceded me, that compels me and motivates me and fuels me, is the same true of you this morning. Here in 2 Timothy 3, look at verse 13. But evil, notice the same word is ascribed to these individuals as God did to the Israelites that were idolaters. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. What's the answer to that? The antidote. Verse 14, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all Good works. And so the Word of God keeps us remembering and in relationship with God's leadership and God's relationship uh, with us on a personal level. And so know that God will work despite leaking memories. The whole world can forget God. And if I take time to remember Him and rejoice in Him and relate to Him, He can lead me today. Everybody else can move on and forget and fade. But God works in individuals' lives. He works in individual families. He starts with little churches like ours that remember him and follow him. Despite all the idolatry, God longs and yearns to prove himself anew and afresh. All right, go to verse 12 back in our text, Judges 2. Look, if you will, now at verse number 12. And we see the, the end result, if you will, of this leak and verse 12, they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, Judges 2.12, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed, notice, other gods, small g, of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. Number two, know that God first will work despite leaking memory. Number two, God will work despite leaking worship. So they forgot who he was. Number two, they failed to worship him exclusively. And we notice two things that the writer of Judges gives us here. First of all, worship that is in cycles. It's cyclical. Worship that is in cycles. Um, and he talks about that in verses 12 uh, through verse 14, kind of this cycle of how uh, things went uh, in this new uh, mindset toward the God they were called to worship. Um, I don't know if you've had this perpetual thing. Have you ever noticed how it seems like no matter how much we wash, dry, fold, and put away clothes, there's always more clothes? Like you can do the whole house and literally within 12 seconds, there's stuff again in the dirty hamper, okay? Or on top of the dryer or the washer, whatever the case may be. Um, I don't know if this is theologically completely sound, but somebody said laundry is a part of the curse. How many of you would agree with that? They're part of this cycle. Um, and here was his premise. If Eve had not bitten the apple, there would be no clothes to even wash, okay? It is part of the curse, okay? 
I would tend to agree with that, but it's a little weird what happens after that, okay? But anyway, uh, there would be no uh, cycle of washing, drying, folding, putting away clothes. Um, here is the cycle of Israel um, and how the judges describes this here. So you have sin. We just talked about that. We'll get to servanthood, servanthood in a moment. They serve those gods. They then are under and serving uh, an oppressor. Then there's supplication or prayer then there's salvation, and then there's a period of silence, sometimes good peace, sometimes just kind of, uh, kind of an uneasy peace that then leads to a resumption of uh, idolatry and oppression. But that's the cycle that happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And so the author here gives kind of a synthesis. This is not describing a specific instance. It's kind of an overview of the entire book. And you'll see this cyclical pattern over and over repeated uh, as we work our way through subsequent generations. Uh, In fact, in verses 12 to 14, let's go on, verse 13. So they provoke the Lord to anger. They forsake the Lord and serve Baal and Ashtaroth. Uh, The anger of, of the Lord was hot against Israel. He delivered them in the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them. He sold them in the hands of their enemies round about so they could not any longer stand before um, their enemies. And so here he begins to describe this first stage of the cycle. Now, when it says God is angry here, you do know that anger is not always the opposite of love, right? I would submit to you, I've said this many times, the opposite of love is apathy, okay? Whatever, man. To feel strongly... In an, anger, in, in an angry way, often is a great evidence of love. God cared that they left him. And here's what I want to encourage you with today. The, the idolatry that frustrates you in your own heart and life that you can't shake, and all of it in our world that ca- scares you and concerns you, God still cares about it. And he yearns to change it and to renew and to bring us back into rightful relationship uh, with himself. And so here we see God cares enough to respond, to be moved by the idolatry of his people. Um, And it's interesting, the end of verse 14, he says, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. What kept the nation of Israel unified? What kept the nation of Israel consolidated together? It was their worship of Yahweh, the one true God. Um, I hear this all the time, and I've asked the same question over, why can't we get along anymore? Well, that's in our own ranks. I was just at a conference this week in Texas, and just to see pastors from all over the country, some missionaries there as well, and to see the unity, I rarely see that, to be honest with you, even amongst God's people. Why is it we can't get along with people in our community? Why is there so much strife and tension? I lovingly challenge you with this thought. I think it's because we all have different gods we're worshiping. Idolatry is not a singular religion. It's a polytheism, right? It's not a monotheism. We're all worshiping who and what and where we want. Because we can't get together on worship, we can't get together on anything else further down the stream, if you will, in our relationship with God and with others. And so this decentralization of worship led the Israelites to fall before their enemies. They couldn't stand up against the enemy because they were falling down in worship to their gods. One author said this, idols divide us. That's why the world today is a place of anger and hostility. Wherever you see people divided, it is because they are worshiping their own idols. Only true worship unites God's people. 
And so this issue of idolatry is bigger than just picking our own God and doing our own thing. It affects our relationship with one another. In fact, we'll look at the verses between in just a moment, but go down to verse 19 as you're kind of looking at that cycle there. And it came to pass when the judge was dead. Again, this is just a summary of the book as a whole, not speaking of one specific judge, that they returned, notice this next phrase, and corrupted themselves more than their fathers. And following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them, they ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. The book of Judges is not always laid out chronologically, and we'll talk about that as we work through the book. But you'll notice if you look at it carefully that not only is there a cycle going on, but it gets worse and worse and worse. The temptation we have is to think, yeah, I have an idol in my life, but I'm managing it. And it's kind of a static cycle. And yeah, I have off moments. But can I encourage you that every generation and every iteration of our idolatry is worse than the one prior. And so may we distance ourselves from it uh, to not get into this cycle. You've probably heard it. Well, one generation does in moderation. The next does in what? Excess. And what we have, full-blown idolatry, began in a small cycle, a small controlled, if you will, just kind of trial, just testing it. And we're reaping now uh, the whirlwind. All right, number two, go to verse 15. So worship that is in cycles, God is able to still enter into, and he will prove this over and over in the book of Judges. Uh, Before we look at this second point, aren't you amazed by God's patience with us? Like I, for me, when I repent of something, one of the things that bothers me the most is, God, I didn't, this isn't the first time I've done it. And I, I have a cycle, and I have certain things that I am prone to, and so do you. And God, here in Judges, is saying, listen, despite the cycle, I still want to give you my grace. I still want to give to you uh, my mercy. All right, verse 15. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said. And as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. Number two, worship under grace. So worship that is in cycles. Number two, worship that is under grace. And I want to give you a couple things under this. I know we're now under sub-point under sub-point, but these are key statements of ways that God manifested his grace to these idolatrous Israelites. Number one, God's grace was against them. It's interesting. These are two sides of God. So God is gracious to them, but he is also against them. Did you see that in verse 15? Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them. Um, And so God is resisting them. He is fighting against them because of the idolatry in their ranks. And so we worship, even when we're off in worship, still under the umbrella of his grace. And so we see here him selling them out, giving them to their enemies. Um, And you notice at the end of verse 15, it says, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn unto them. He told them that's what he was going to do, right? He had warned them. They didn't consider or live in light of that warning. And so God graciously follows through on what he had said. Key thought today, ultimately God's word says that all the friction that is against us is not the result of the terrible enemies of God or the devil himself, listen to me, but is often directly from God himself. 
Here's my challenge to you that ought to be the messaging to the next generation. Are we telling our kids and grandkids, God is allowing these consequences? I think sometimes we, we think God will bless me if I do right, but if I do wrong, there's just kind of these impersonal consequences. No, God is intimately involved in the consequences of our wrongdoing. That's graciousness on his part. He's using, he's chastening, he's trying to bring us back to him. Instead of moping and complaining and worrying and fretting, may we revel in a God that cares enough to confront us to correct us, to bring consequences as we see him carefully doing throughout the book of Judges. God was gracious by being against them. And may we appreciate where he is the same in our lives today. All right, verse 16, as we just read, the Lord, despite all of this, after sending the consequences, he raises up Judges. Number two, God's grace was nevertheless to them playing on the word there in verse 16. God's grace was against them. God's grace was nevertheless. He took the high road. He, despite all they had stumbled in, he still worked in their lives. And over and over and over again, God raises up a judge, and then he raises up another judge, and then he raises up another one. So basically what you have in the book of Judges is a collision between two things that seem to be counter to each other and incompatible with each other. You have the perpetual failings of God's people, their ingratitude, their stubbornness, their rebellion, their folly, and then stacked up right against it, you have God's long-suffering, his patience, his love, his mercy, and his grace. And he just keeps giving it and giving it and giving it. May that give to us today hope. I don't know that there's a book in the Bible that shows the collision of those two things more consistently than the book of Judges. Our shortcomings and God's tenacity and God's refusal to give up on his people. Here's my question to us today. Have we given up where God hasn't even given up? God's not given up on the local church. God's not given up on the Christian home. God's not given up on what he can still do. If we're not careful, we're focused on the gods of this world instead of the God who has promised to continue to be gracious to us. Um, I don't know if you're a camper or not. And by camper, I don't mean like a glamper, okay? Who you have like electricity and internet, you know? Does does the campground have internet, high-speed internet? Uh, I'm not talking about those kind of... I'm talking real campers. I don't know if you're one of those or not. Camp on the ground, Um, I was reading an analogy the other day, I think captures this for us in our day. Listen to this kind of picture. I think this captures how we navigate this tension. The author said this, when camping, backpackers use a ground pad, not for softness, but for insulation. Make note of that. Without it, he says, our tiny bodies would attempt to warm the cool bulk of planet Earth, in the process, chilling us. He said, I see a similar principle at work in many unhealthy relationships. A, quote, warm person, because they do not have sufficient insulation, is slowly cooled by the sheer bulk of a church, business, family system, codependent partner, etc. They usually do not notice it until they are getting, quote, unquote, hypothermic. The answer answer is to pack a metaphorical ground pad, uh, pad and to use it thoroughly. That little bit of personal insulation that allows you to stay warm, perhaps a healthy sense of self, perhaps a boundary or uh, two. And he concluded with this, one shivering life will never warm up the thermal mass of some great and chilly bulk. 
Trying it will end poorly. Pack a ground pad. And here's my thought to us today. We are allowing the coolness of the world. We're allowing the chill religiously of our day. We're trying to change all that or we're letting all of that change us instead of keeping that layer of trust and confidence in a God who is still faithful. That can keep my heart warm. That can keep my mind seeing and believing and trusting in what he wants to do. We need that insulation. We need that boundary to keep our faith and confidence in him. And so here's kind of the question before we move to our second main point. Where are you attributing the cooling or leakage in our day to anything other than idolatry? It's creeping into our hearts, creeping into our lives. And where do you need to focus less upon global, grand, everybody else kind of idolatry and instead focus upon the personal temperature of your own heart towards God? Trusting him, staying close to him, staying confident in a God who can more than deal with the leakage of our day. I've seen God, haven't you? Haven't you read about it and heard about it and seen in your life God's brought you back from the brink of just abandoning him and giving up on him? And if God can do it for you and God can do it for me, he can do it for everybody on this planet and he can start with you and he can start with me. God can move even in idolatrous leakage. All right, number two, go to verse 17. And there's a second area that probably concerns us even more than the leakage of worship toward God, that God is more than able to handle. Verse 17, and yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring, all right, strong language, prostituting themselves after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. And they turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. Number two, So God is more than able to work despite idolatrous leakage, where we see worship leaking, faithfulness to God on the decline. Number two, idolatrous consequences. The consequences of idolatry, despite all that that brings into our life, God is more than able to work. I mentioned this on Vision Sunday a few weeks ago. We have, for one of the few moments in human history, a few times in human history, seven living generations. So we would have included, um, back to the baby boomers, you also have the silent generation, you have the greatest generation. There are seven generations currently alive on planet Earth. And one of the things I've noticed, the more generations that are in a room and in a place and in a, in a world, it compounds our idolatry. If we're off, then one generation's idols combined with another, person's, another generation's idols, that it, it just it, it morphs into this ugly thing, and not just an ugly thing, but brings ugly consequences into our lives. And may I say today that God is able to still work despite not just the idolatry itself, but the consequences of it. I hear, have you ever heard this? Maybe you've said it. It's just too far gone. There's no way to bring this back. Now, there might be certain things that we love that may not ever be what they once were, But God can always bring us back despite not just the idolatry, but the consequences of that in our lives. Do you believe that today? Because I do. God can overcome anything, including his assigned consequences for the failures or shortcomings of his people. And so God is able, as we'll see him do in this book. All right, so let's talk about a couple things quickly as it relates to this. Number one, know that God will use, I love this, know that God will use consequential unfaithfulness. So where we have been unfaithful and the consequences of that, God can actually use that. Um, Brother John Candle, is he in here right now? I don't know if I see him in here. 
He's out, all right? He's in the lobby. He had surgery on Tuesday. If you saw him, he's, you know, he's kind of dinged up. So if you want to take a swing at him, probably this is the week to do it. Um, just don't, I mean, don't hit his arm, but he can't defend himself as he normally would. But he had wrist surgery, and he was telling me this morning about, and it's his dominant hand, okay? He's, he's got to do both wrists, and he's like, let's just get the worst one out of the way. And he was talking about little things that are like almost impossible to do without your dominant hand. Think about things that you do, and then just remove your dominant hand from it. And the thing he said, what was cracking me up this morning was he was saying trying to put on his socks. And I was, t- have you ever seen those little infomercials with the little telescoping thing to help you put your socks and your, your shoes on? Um, I, I told him you may want to get one of those, but he was talking about how he was trying to curl up his toes, like, like where they were real small at the, at the peak so that he could kind of just shove the sock on. He was just not like trying to curl his foot up, trying to get his, his, his feet into his socks. And he's not wearing socks today. No, I'm just kidding. I think he is, but Beth probably helped him out with that. Um, but why did John have surgery? I mean, he's uncomfortable today, taking a shower, I'm sure is fun, trying to eat, trying to sign something. Uh, it's limiting him. Why? Because in the end, he'll be better for it, right? You know that God never judges his people? Um, we as parents, we should not punish our children. I hate that term. We correct, right? We chastise. God does the same with his kids. And where we view detrimental, it's over. God's just bringing consequences and it's over. God's actually trying to use those to bring a better end, to take our failures and his correction and create something that brings him glory, something that's good, something that's wholesome, something that brings about his intended purpose. And so God can use the consequences of our unfaithfulness uh, to draw us closer to him. And I would give you two of them quickly that we see God referencing here in the text. Look at verse 18. And when the Lord raised up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Notice this, for it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. Number one, tested in their fellowship. God used the consequences of their unfaithfulness to test who they would follow. So the Israelites had two choices when God raised up a judge. Keep following the gods of the world or follow the judge, the savior that God had sent to them, the leader that God had sent their way. Were they going to keep following the false god or were they going to put their trust and their fellowship in the leader that God had sent? And so here you see the choice of God's people, the false god or the judge. Both were claiming to be saviors, but each must choose which they would follow. And I love the compassion there. As we read in verse number 18, that he repented him. He changed his mind. He changed course. He returned to a place of favor because of their groanings. Not because they earned it, but because he was gracious to them. He loved them. He cared for them, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. Now, here's my question to you today. Where do we see in the book of Judges or anyone else in Scripture where the false gods have compassion on us? For one, they're not gods. They don't even exist, right? They're a figment of our imagination, conveniently so. But the false gods of this world, the idols of this world, don't ever feel compassion for us. God always feels compassion for us. 
Not just when we're faithful, but when we are most unfaithful. He still loves us. And he longs to draw us to his breast. He longs to draw us closer to him. And so we see this graciousness on the part of God. He says, I'm going to test you. Will you follow these gods or will you follow me? And so he uses these consequences to give them this choice. One author said this, Christianity has always been a hard sell because it confronts us head on with our love of autonomy. We love ourselves. We like to call the shots. And God uses these challenges in our lives to cause us to choose. Are we going to follow him or are we going to follow ourselves? All right, and then an interesting part of the text. Look at verse 20. It says, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because that this people has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. Notice verse 22, key verse. That through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. So number one, it was a test of fellowship, this consequence of unfaithfulness. Number two, it exposed their hypocrisy. It exposed whether they really were following the Lord or not. And so leaving these Canaanite people in the land allowed them regularly to choose, am I going to follow the idols of these people or am I going to choose to worship the Lord my God? Have you ever thought about an ideal world in your mind? One of the things I'd love to just scrap would be all the idols, the ones even I'm tempted and regularly fall down before and, and fawn after and am at least lured into. But God is gracious to leave them because it's regularly a a check on our spirit that, that even the private idols of our hearts, are we going to choose God or are we going to choose ourselves? And the Lord left these Canaanites to test and to prove and to expose where they were not in right relationship with him. From the beginning, we talked about Eve a moment ago. We had the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Even in a perfect place, God still allowed them to choose, right? God wants us to choose him. And one of the gifts of this present world with all of its brokenness and idolatry is every day we get to choose, am I going to worship you, God, or something else? And the something else is allow me the privilege of regularly choosing to worship him over them. Every response to temptation is an act of worship. Am I going to do my thing or his thing? And so viewing idols through that lens and rejoicing that God gives us the privilege to choose, heaven's going to be amazing. But that choice now has been made in that moment. We get to daily choose to worship him or to worship the idols of our land. And so what a privilege to be given that choice, to be given that opportunity on a regular basis. Stop worrying about how bad the world is getting and instead choose to give your heart to God before the next generation. And here's the thought that I had. Is it not more striking and more inspiring as our world continues to downwardly spiral if a generation still sees us worshiping the one true God? It's more distinctive. It's more inspiring. It's more engaging. They see true faithfulness. It's not cultural Christianity. It's committed Christianity. Choosing God over the increasing horde of idols and all their subtle forms. What a privilege God has given us in our day. Yes, there are consequences. They also position us to have greater influence. All right, and then chapter 3. Let's spend a few moments here as we wind down today. 
Look at verse 1. We're just going to go to verse 6. We'll spend more time in this chapter. Some really cool stories we'll get to next time. But these final kind of introductory remarks from the writer of Judges. Verse 1, now these are the nations which the Lord left. Notice this, to prove Israel by them. Even as many of Israel had not known all the wars of Canaan. This is probably one of my favorite parts of our study today. Number two, know that God will use consequential tension. So consequential unfaithfulness. Number two, consequential tension. Um, I mentioned I was in uh, Texas this past week, and if you tracked with where, I thought I was going to warmer weather. I didn't pack anything warm, didn't look at the forecast. And uh, they got nailed with ice, two plus inches of ice on everything. And it just kept raining. It, ra- it was ice from Monday afternoon, including thunder. We had thunder while it was storming ice. It was just a weird weather pattern um, through Wednesday evening. Didn't know if I'd get out on Thursday. Um, but the whole city was shut down. I mean, it was just, we had our conference and, and that was it. There were no restaurants open. There were no nothing. It was just, it was, uh, it was hilarious to see. And I was kind of glad they stayed home because they don't know how to drive in that stuff. And uh, even here, it would have shut down most stuff. I mean, it was a, they had no salt trucks, no plows. It was just a interesting couple of days there. But the fear, the concern that was there, um, I'm just amazed at things and I'm not discounting their fear or their concern, but the things that immobilize us, things that, that grip our hearts and, and the tensions that we avoid at all costs, um, somebody was joking about their manifestation of bravery. They said, everyone is brave in their own way. I, for one, am not afraid of eating raw cookie dough. Like, I am a brave person, okay? Um, ooh, so risky. It's a little pricier now, maybe, with that egg, raw egg that's in there. But uh, bravery, that takes on different forms. Do you know that tension is one of the best things for us? In fact, some of you who know more than I do about our anatomy, our physiological traits, Tension in the body, not in a wrong sense, tensions are what we have to have. If you have too little stress, that's just as unhealthy as too much stress. Idleness, not having certain tensions being maintained in your life. And I think as it relates to our walk with God, sometimes we want no tension, often at the expense of our relationship uh, with Him, our own spiritual health and well-being. And so notice two things God does. He references here of how he uses this tension brought on by their idolatry to actually uh, accomplish some redemptive purposes. Number one, jot this down as we just read, it helped teach them, it helped them be taught in warfare. So the the continuing tension between the Canaanites that God did not drive out at the end of chapter 2 and now referenced at the beginning of chapter 3 actually helped the Israelites be taught in warfare. Notice in verse 2, so he says he left them to prove them because they had not known the wars of Canaan. Verse 2, only that generation, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. And then he mentions five lords in verse number 3 that were some of those that he left to teach them war. Um, And if you track with the... uh, whatever you would call the balloon that crossed our nation this past week. Um, January 28th, the first that I heard of it or was aware of it through yesterday, um, if you were under a rock, there was a high-altitude balloon uh, with Chinese markings on it that crossed all the way from Alaska and then was shot down yesterday off the coast of South Carolina. So we let it get a full overview of the weather that we have here in the United States, at least was the claim of China. Um, 
we live in a world where often we actually are very insulated from actual tension. And, and it was, I had friends who were tracking it. They were like driving under it as it was moving across, especially in the deep south yesterday afternoon or morning. Um, and it's just, it's funny to me how, not that I'm not concerned about that, but how little actual tension we navigate on that front. We live in a very soft, protected kind of existence, don't we? Let's be honest. Um, if the temperature's off or there's one little inconvenience, uh, many times we're not prepared to deal with that tension. And so God here, with his people, he leaves them, these who are the consequence of their idolatry, to teach them battle, to teach them how to navigate the tensions that the previous generation had lived with every second of every day. They hadn't seen the battles of Jericho. They hadn't seen the crossing of the Jordan River. They hadn't dealt with the stumble at Ai. They they hadn't dealt with all the ups and downs of battle. In fact, they had forgotten it by Judges chapter 2. And so God in his mercy uses these nations around them to bring them to moments where they desperately need him to show up and to deliver them from the enemy that's fresh in front of them. This tension uh, from God uh, or from God in consequence for their idolatry, he's actually able to use it. Um, We have a term in parenting, you've probably heard of this, helicopter parents. We don't mean that typically in a good way, all right? The teenagers, if they would say, my parent is a helicopter parent, they don't mean that in a complimentary way. The new term is lawnmower parents, okay? We're not just helicopter, we're down right on top of our kids managing everything. Lady I respect greatly, she was just writing on this tendency that we have as parents, um, and she said this, helicopter parenting subconsciously teaches our kids That though God may seem so big, so strong, and so mighty, he's really no bigger than we are. God isn't mighty to save, mommy is. And and the tendency in our day is, is to miss the risk and the threats that need God to show up. So God maybe today, in our day, is leaving some of these tensions to help us desperately need him. To learn how to fight spiritual warfare and not to run from the enemy at the first sign of threat or attack. And so spiritual warfare is not about eliminating tension. It's about maintaining that tension and managing it with faith and trust and confidence in the Lord. And we live in a day where believers, listen to me, are, their life motto, if we're totally honest, is we're trying to avoid tension at all costs. And what that produces in us is soft, feeble believers. And so God is using the consequences of idolatry to teach his people warfare. We don't have time to read it, but jot down in your notes, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and then chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, and chapter 3, and verse 12. And in that, Paul says to Timothy, endure hardness. Endure hardness is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 12, all that live godly will suffer persecution. And so he's telling the next generation, you're going to suffer. You're going to have challenges. You're going to have tension. Stay faithful to what God has called you to do and be. All right, let's land today in verses four through six. Notice the second benefit or use that God turns this tension of their idolatry to good. And they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken to the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses and the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and the Hevites and Jebusites. Notice verse 6. Unfortunately, this is true in our day as well. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. 
Lastly, God uses this tension to expose our compromise. He uses this tension to teach us warfare and to expose our compromise, wedding the world, marrying the world. And the Israelites here, they choose to ignore the commands of God through Moses and they do their own thing, the compromise that's exposed in this tension God allows. If you and I today are going to deal with idolatry, we have to first have it exposed by a jealous God. He has to be the one to expose it because he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't, he doesn't take any shortcuts. He doesn't soften it. He is direct with us. And he uses the tensions of our day to expose that. Um, somebody said this about our kids, and it's easy to say when it's your kid or your grandkid, but when it's mine. Author said this, Do not fear for your children growing up in such a challenging time. Rejoice that God has sovereignly chosen them to be the light in this dark generation. Be sober, be vigilant, and raise them. Understand that God has chosen you to raise up a generation for such a time as this. God has raised up us and God will raise up the next generation for this moment with all of its tensions and all of its challenges. He doesn't just work in one area. He's working in all areas. He's bringing it all together. And so may we do our part to be faithful and not fearful, courageous instead of playing it safe uh, for the sake of what God has intended. We're not doing life, family, and ministry on a playground, are we? It's a battlefield. It is a battlefield. And so our striving for a lack of tension, our avoidance of it at all costs, exposes where we don't believe that God has called us. The answer to this idol is to instead be willing to fight for our faith and our future. Seeking comfort, avoiding uh, tension can actually be an idol in of itself. And so the way to avoid worshiping it is to be willing to fight for our faith and for our future. There's a story out of Vermont this past week. Um, I think somebody texted to me after I did my session on mental health and uh, just kind of an indication of where there are lackings. But this was in uh, Alberg, Vermont. State troopers were called to the Alberg Community Education Center just before 7 p.m. on Tuesday, so this past Tuesday, after a report of a large fight involving spectators during a 7th and 8th grade boys basketball game. Did you see this? Russell, Russell Jarose, age 60, was taken by ambulance to Northwestern Medical Center where he was pronounced dead. A guy got killed in a middle school basketball game because people couldn't control their spirit, their attitude, and the tensions involved in that. And if we're not careful, we're allowing this world and the context in which we're doing life to just be something less than everything God intended it to be. Our sense of inevitable destruction and irreversible slippage exposes where our worship, our thinking that this is where we're at, exposes where our worship, even labeled Christian, is actually idolatry, the worship of false gods or a version of God that is feeble and that is inaccurate. And I use the graphic. I don't know what you thought when you saw the little marker guy, just a guy sitting on his recliner with a remote. Our idolatry is not... The, the gold Buddhas in the backyard. It's digital many times. It's virtual. It's things in our heads and hearts that consume our focus where God should be there. And I saw this picture, and then I'll, I don't know if you can make it out there, some kids sitting in church, it looks like. And here was the caption. We cannot expect our youth to have God consciousness 
if we allow them to subconsciously disengage in his presence. That's idolatry in its most postmodern form is we're allowing things, digital things, to consume our consciousness where God alone rightly deserves to be. And may we not allow the next generation to pick up on that same mindset as we move forward. All right, this question, and we'll pray. Will you allow God to free you and every generation you influence from the despair of idolatrous leakage and idolatrous consequences? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today.